We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Zot Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Soft Talk Radio. It is June 22nd, and this is show number 71. Yeah, already 71. And the title of our show today is Manufactured Terror Busted Wide Open. Well, this is the title of the show, and this is also the title of her book written by uh, Joe Quinn and Neil Bradley, our usual suspects. So I'm your host for tonight. My name is Pierre Escordon. And uh, I'm going to be interviewing Joe Quinn and Nick Bradley. Today, roles are reversed. And uh, following last week's show, where, uh, where Joe and Neil interviewed myself and co-author Laura Knight about our new book, Of Changes and the Human Cosmic Connection, this time I will be asking them questions about their recently published book, which is actually very, very interesting. And uh, I recommend every listener to quickly purchase and read this book if you've not done this yet. Also, if you have any question about this riveting topic, please feel free to call and uh, we'll talk to you, we'll listen to your questions, or you can also use the chat room and uh, post your questions through the chat room. So, Joe Quinn is a, has been writing editorials for SOT.net for 10 years. He's the author of SOT.net's SOT Report videos. His articles have appeared on many alternative news sites and has been interviewed on several internet radio shows. His SOT.net editorials, other with other blog entries, can be found on his personal blog, JoeQueen, in one word, dot net. And he also co-author of a book, 9-11, The Ultimate Truth. And Neil Bradley, uh, and Joe, I forgot to mention, holds a master in European Studies. That's his uh, initial academic credential. And Neil Bradley, with us tonight, he has a Bachelor of Art in Political Science. He has a background in public relations. He has been writing editorials for Sod.net for five years already. And uh, his uh, production can be found on his own personal blog titled Neil Bradley, in one word, N-I-A-L-L-B-R-A-D-L-E-Y.net. So, welcome to the Salt Talk Radio, guys. Gee, it's good to be here. Yeah, it's wow. Kind of, uh, it's, it's an honor. Change. It's a change. You know, a change. I've heard so much about this place, uh, yeah. the show. It's like, yeah, I love what you're doing. It's great, you know. Uh, <laughs> you like the lounge? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's corporate level uh, furnishings around here. The cigars, the yeah. leather seats. The refreshments yeah. are fantastic. They're fantastic. You, you yeah. do great. Well, we want you to treat you well, you know, for your first. Uh, <laughs> I'll be right in the show. <laughs> Absolutely. So, shall we get started with a hard, how do you say, hardball questions? Oh, hard-hitting questions. I thought it questions. Okay, yeah. How do you come up with this uh, title, Manufactured Terror, and especially the last part, Busted, Wide Open? A, a non-native <laughs> might not uh, understand this. Well, uh, Manufactured Terror, obviously, is part, uh, part of the title of, of, of our book, but um, Busted, Wide Open is a kind of an in-joke. Uh, I'm not sure many people know except uh, the people who use it and the people who use it most often busted and busted wide open are people uh, 
on uh, YouTube. People upload videos to YouTube uh, specifically about false flag kind of terror attacks and terrorism, trying to expose the government uh, government involvement in, in terror attacks. And they very often use busted. Uh, but to those, signify that they found the smoking gun. Of course, yeah, busted open, busted. We've busted this... Uh, this this uh, topic or this event wide open would have exposed the evildoers, you know, hands in the cookie jar and stuff. So those kind of videos, we kind of laugh at them. We kind of first of all, we were kind of annoyed at them because they were so uh, badly done, and the evidence that they presented was so <coughs> uh, well tenuous and uh, subjective. So uh, we were annoyed at that because you know we're writing on the same kind of topics, but these people were taking it to a ridiculous extreme and really discrediting anybody who's trying seriously to look into it by association. But then, since then, we've kind of got over that and we just kind of laugh at them. Because, you know, they always have funny voices as well. You know, it's kind of like, hey, YouTubers, you got to check out, check out this video. I totally busted this one wide open. And then they proceed to explain in um, <clears throat> rather uh, inane terms uh, how they haven't actually found anything. So that's that's the title we today just uh, because we will be talking about part of one of the major things uh, uh, that people have used that busted thing on is the was the Boston bombings, Marathon bombing, uh, where people busted that open. Yeah, uh, I think the first time I saw it widely used was the event before that Sandy Hook. Oh yes, Sandy Hook school yeah. shooting, yeah. and it seems to just snowball from there. Yeah. Busted wide open, actors basically okay. actors all over the place, no real people, no blood, you know. Uh, yeah, blah blah blah. But we'll talk about that later, maybe. Um, well, we can talk about uh, what specific uh, mass bombing or mass shooting you're dealing with in this book. Do you focus on a few events, on the major events, on all events recorded in modern history? What's the scope? The scope is over the past maybe what year? Are we 2014, probably the past seven, seven, eight years, uh, which has been. Uh, the time frame in which most of the major homegrown uh, terror plots US. in the U.S. that is uh, have occurred, um, because that's kind of a phenomenon unto itself within the whole kind of war on terror, uh, this idea of homegrown terrorism, because before that, obviously, everybody knows that, you know, even before 9-11, but then especially with 9-11, it was the evil Arabs over there and that, you know, other part of the world where sandy and they wear towels on their head what do you call it? somewhere over there in the middle east what's it called the middle east arabia arabia or something arab people over there were scary and attacked us pipeline is and we had to go over there and bomb them and to stop them from attacking us but then um after after a few a few years of that with afghanistan and iraq and various other places then um, it kind of came home you know uh, as a natural progression, I suppose, you know, and uh, they never explained, the authorities never explained why that would be happening, but uh, of course some people, some kind of liberals and uh, people who are, you know, lefty, that kind of thing would say it's, you know, it's ultimately the U.S. government's fault that these kind of things happen in the U.S., you know, because Mm. they're over there bombing other countries, so they're going to uh, provoke the ire of people within the U.S. uh, who are either Muslim or of Middle Eastern descent and so-called blowback, blowback. Yeah. So uh, these events in the book are, are are examples of that kind of supposed blowback. Uh, although we take a slightly different uh, 
uh, view of what the origin and the genesis of them is. Okay. I think uh, the thing they all share in common is that they were particularly pronounced media events. And the one thing they have in common that made them so is, is the terror factor. I mean, to what extent was it a terrorizing event? That's partly to do with how much effort was put into making it so, and partly to do with how much it was received as such. So whatever the biggest events were, according to how long it stayed in the news, um, what kind of mass social effect it had. Okay, we'll go into that uh, in a minute. Before I wanted to ask you a question, uh, how did you come to uh, develop this interest in this, into this topic, this uh, terrorism topic? Well, for for me, um, I think it would have been around 9-11. Actually, 9-11 had happened, and I'd gone, left school that year, went to university, chose a course I wasn't really interested in. 9-11 happened right when I began, and about a, a year later, I started reading some other things. In fact, I think I think the very first clue I got that something was wrong with the official story, the first time I started to pay attention was when I saw this video about the Pentagon. And I subsequently found out many years later that it was a stop-net production. I had no idea at the time, but it was the first thing that made me think, wait a minute, something's going on here. So I switched my, my courses um, midstream at the end of my first year, and I started studying politics because I realized that I was interested in power and the abuse of power. Mm-hmm. And what comes with that is the kind of hardcore topics we're talking about, the use of fear to control people. So I, that's, that was how, how and why I got interested, I think. All right. Um, I... I'm not sure. Uh, I've always just, I suppose, naturally had a kind of uh, been had a, a distrust of authority for some reason. I don't know why. I think I was born with it. I just uh, well, it, don't don't like authority in the sense that not that I don't like it, but maybe it was I don't know. Maybe it was childhood or something like that. But basically, I have a distrust of authority, a dislike of authority, uh, a kind of a reaction against authority, and. Um, I think also the part of Ireland you grew up in, yeah. compared to the part I grew up in, would have well, opened yeah. your eyes to... Yeah, it it did. In terms of authority, and two things, a distrust of authority and a keen uh, sense uh, for injustice uh, and seeing injustice and having a problem with injustice. Um, I mean, obviously, growing up in Northern Ireland, I kind of had that, uh, you know, I had ample kind of evidence and cause to, to see a lot of injustice uh, perpetrated by authority, by authority figures, by police forces and military forces and stuff. Can you describe, just for our listeners who are not uh, in the known concerning European history, or recent history, what was the situation in Northern Ireland when you were a child? Um, 
Was it an independent country? Was an, how was it going? <laughs> was a history lesson here. I, I'll try and give you a very brief history lesson. You know, Ireland has been kind of occupied and under the control in some form or other for about 800 years by the British because it's quite close to Britain and for various different reasons throughout history. The British, well, part of the British Empire and stuff, it was an easy option to kind of take Ireland, a small country. It was a, a, a kind of a cash cow. If you know what I mean, it was used for a lot of them um, for raw materials and for food for British troops expanding empire around the world. So that's why the British wanted to keep it for all that time. And throughout those 800 years, a lot of rebellions and revolts and that kind of stuff. And in 1922, they eventually, um, after a, a major kind of revolution or rebellion type of thing, uh, in 1916, in 1922, they got independence from uh, the UK or the United Kingdom, Britain, whatever. And um, apart from six counties, about, you know, about a fifth, what's that, maybe no, a bit less than a fifth of the country in the north, in the northeast, uh, was kept because it was predominantly Protestant, because of the whole Protestant Catholic divide that was associated with uh, nationality as well. Most Irish were, most Irish were Catholics, and most uh, British were Protestants, and the British had kind of uh, planted or uh, you know, put a lot of their subjects, uh, loyal subjects, in this part of. Ireland, so they kind of didn't want. They threatened the kind of civil war uh, at the time of independence if they were, if they weren't uh, allowed to remain a part of the UK. So from 1921, that part of that small part of Ireland remained a part of the United Kingdom. England, Ireland, Scotland, or England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. So, uh, so then because they were in the ascendancy, the loyal English subjects in that part, uh, there was discrimination against Catholics. Uh, for a long time and that eventually got to the point where in the 60s with the whole civil rights movement and all that kind of stuff that Catholics started marching for civil rights so were discriminated against uh, in terms of housing and education and jobs across the board it was pretty bad you know um, they didn't have a very good kind of policing representation if you know what I mean uh, none at all in fact there were no Catholics there was a very sharp divide religiously and uh, nationally if you know what I mean from a national ideology point of view and um, Catholics weren't that represented at all in their own country. So um, in the 1960s, there was a lot of civil rights movements and stuff, and that was uh, responded to by the authorities with uh, with a heavy hand, you know, beatings and stuff. It kind of culminated in 1972 with a Bloody Sunday song by U2 where uh, 13 uh, uh, Catholics who were part of a civil rights protest were shot by the British Army, deliberately, really, as a way to kind of put them down. And... Uh, but just before that, there had been an armed kind of insurrection that started against the British military forces uh, in, the, in 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 that in the Northern Ireland. <clears throat> so I grew up. I was born in 1973, and it continued on until ni- until the 90s. So all through my teenage years, it was going on and stuff. So yeah, I you know, and it has a lot of parallels with what's going on today, obviously, because the British uh, are very much uh, the ideological. The British elite are the, very much the ideological forefathers of the American elite today, and uh, so they use the same kind of modus modus operandi, yeah, in, in dealing with the little people and, and, and maintaining their interests wherever they deem their interests to be. So, uh, yeah, I drew on that a lot uh, for my interest, later interest in, in what I'm doing today, and seeing a lot of the same stuff going on around the world on a broader scale, uh, just transposed from you know, say Northern Ireland to the Middle East and elsewhere in the world, you know, just seeing the kind of template 
of the way authorities, the, the power, the powers that be in this world kind of operate and how through how it's really you know through deception by way of deception and all sorts of uh, you know scurrilous underhanded tactics uh, to deceive people into you know wanting what is uh, the worst for them really you know what well, are some terrorism in Ireland uh there was yeah uh primar- primarily on the part of the <laughs> I'm not being I'm not biased here primarily on the part of the of the British and the British military and uh, British intelligence who are uh, organizing it with paramilitary gangs going around shooting you know trying to provoke conflict it's very similar in fact when you look at it you know in terms of civil war I've written a lot about uh, you know provoking civil war in countries as a way that the imperial powers the US Britain will provoke a kind of a civil war situation in a country as a way to maintain their control over it Um because uh, you know, in the modern, certainly in the modern day, and in, in the late 20th century, it was harder and harder for them to justify simply being there as a force of occupation, an imperial force of occupation. So very often they would incite uh, ethnic strife within a country to justify their peacekeeping in quotes uh, role or their stabilising role, so that they could justify uh, their presence there. You know, uh, so they did that in, in Northern Ireland. You know, between Protestants and Catholics, they had MI5 had uh, kind of paramilitary gangs going around and, and even even British British um British military intelligence like uh had plainclothes soldiers going around shooting uh innocent civilians from both communities and allowing the blame to fall on one or other communities to uh, you know um they had they had a pro- they had a policy, an official policy. The British had an official policy in Northern Ireland to they called it ulsterization. Ulster is the name of one of the four provinces of Ireland, and part of that province it makes up Northern Ireland. But they called it Ulster anyway, even though it's only a part of that province. And they um, they had a policy of Ulsterisation, which was uh, making the conflict uh, appear to be an internal uh, sectarian civil conflict among the people there, rather than what uh, the IRA and the, the political uh, party of the IRA Sinn Féin were trying to do, which was to point out that it was the source of the problem was uh, occupation and discrimination. Occupation by a foreign power and discrimination against a, a section of the population. Uh, so they had a propaganda campaign to try and convince everybody that it was uh, that, that wasn't the cause of the problem, that wasn't the source of the of the problem. It was uh, these people they just can't get on for some reason, you know, they just they just fight it's just the age old religious divides, etc, etc. And, you know, you just so transpose that on to, you know, uh, the Middle East today, you know, Sunni Shia, even in Iraq right now, mm-hmm. you know, saying that it's exactly. this is always going to happen. Tony Blair said it was always going to happen, you know. Nothing to do with the fact they bombed the crap out of the country for 10 years and uh, and occupied it and tried to sow that div- division. They, uh, it was always just going to naturally happen, you know, which is nonsense because uh, under Saddam it didn't really happen. I mean, if, if that's what it takes, a leader like that to keep a country uh, together and actually quite prosperous and quite uh, quite developed, like Iraq was, uh, all through mm-hmm. the 80s and 90s. It was the most, most developed country in the Middle East until the Americans came along with their NATO bombing and their their freedom and democracy. Um, so it's not, it's not inevitable that r- religious, among any group of people in a society, that there be, uh, or two groups of people, there be religious or ethnic strife. Uh, it's certainly not inevitable. No. 
I remember when I was a kid in France, there was a lot of news coverage coming from Ireland. And from what I understood at the time, what the MSM hammered in our minds, what are the RIA, uh, I, RA, yeah? IRA. Uh, uh, Irish Revolutionary Army. Irish Republican Army. Republican Army was uh, organizing uh, various kind of activity, including terrorism, because they had some quote-unquote legitimate claims, mm. and I wanted to get their, their republic, their, their independence. So um, wasn't it that? Wasn't it Irish people or some Irish people organizing some terrorist events in order to gain their independence? Yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't terrorism. As it's defined today. Oh. It was a, a war, unless you wanted to define all wars as terrorism. Okay. Uh, terrorism officially is defined as, <clears throat> you know, attacking a defenseless, unarmed civilian population uh, or civilians for, uh, for political reasons to achieve a political aim. Uh, but the IRA, generally speaking, didn't do that. They attacked uh, armed uh, British uh, soldiers um, and local kind of policemen. Uh, all of whom were armed and they saw it as, as officially a war. It was, I mean, by any standards, by any modern or even historical standards, it was a war. <clears throat> but beneath that, there was terrorism. And it was primarily state terrorism. Terrorism in the definition of it as uh, attacking a civilian population and terrorizing a civilian population in order to achieve a political aim. Um, that was, the British did that. That's the British government, the British intel uh, services. That's their MO. That's the way they operate. Uh, because it's very effective. So these people don't have any qualms. It's not about, uh, there's no honor or anything, or, or good and bad, or right and wrong. It's about what works. And I think it works most effectively <clears throat> in any country uh, is the vast majority of people in any country are, are the civilians. And if there's some kind of a resistance movement, then that resistance movement gets all of its support practically from the civilian population. Uh, therefore, that's their, that's their ground base. That's 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 how they are, are able to, to operate. Uh, so the, the British government and the American government and other governments around the world understood that uh, you attack them to stop them supporting the, the revolution. I mean, a revolution is always, even if it's armed, insurrection, whatever you want to call it, it's always against some kind of a corrupt power. And it's always, uh, uh, it always comes from injustices suffered by the ordinary people. And it's a section of the ordinary people of a country who take up arms, the ones who are willing to do it and have whatever proclivities to do it. So um, they're one and the same, essentially, in a genuine uh, uh, revolution or rebellion. It's, it's the ordinary people who are essentially re rebelling. They may not be carrying the weapons, but they are certainly supporting it. Uh, so the people with the guns are hard to find because they tend to you know, have different strategies to, 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 to avoid capture. Uh, so the, way, the most effective way to destroy them is to attack the population, the civilian population. And that's what, I mean, it's not, it doesn't take a lot of planning or thinking or strategizing to come to that conclusion. And they, the powers that be in this world have come to that conclusion a long time ago. And they've implemented that strategy for, you know, for hundreds of years over and over again. But of course, by the time it comes to the newspapers and how it's actually reported, very often it's very different. Yeah, there's a point. Um, so maybe the official story concerning, for example, Palestine is not exactly uh, reflecting truth. What we hear usually that in Palestine you have some uh, radical jihadists or radical Muslims that out of despair blow themselves in a falafel market in Tel Aviv or 
or Jerusalem. And the narrative, if I correctly understand it, that uh, it's a political claim and by blowing yourself in a civilian place, you will uh, gain the recognition of uh, Palestine as an independent country. Uh, so is it really what happens? How does it work? Uh, what is behind this uh, uh, suicide bombing event? Suicide bombers? Joe wrote the book on that one. <laughs> well, suicide bombers are... I mean, it may, it may actually be true that there are some suicide attacks. I think there are now. Now, but uh, originally, the first one, I think, reported was in the early 1980s, uh, as far as Israel-Palestine is concerned, in the early 1980s. Uh, but I think for most of most of them up until very recently were certainly not uh, uh, suicide bombing. The, the suicide bombing concept, the idea of it, has been promoted by the West because it very effectively demonizes the opposition uh, to the Western public. The opposition, therefore, well, anybody who just blow themselves up along with kind of indiscriminately uh, or partly indiscriminately uh, they're crazy. How can you identify with that? That's, I mean, they have no, the basic, one of the basic uh, uh, human um, drives is for kind of self-preservation. You know, even people who are fighting, you know, they don't go and just, you know, run into other bullets. They want to fight against something and then live to fight another day. You know, mm-hmm. there's self-preservation thing going on there. So these people, these suicide bombers supposedly just don't have that. They're crazy. They're Fanatical, so nobody can, nobody in, in their right mind can identify with them. Certainly, nobody in the West. So it was very effective propaganda uh, against uh, anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian propaganda to uh, depict them as suicide bombers, crazy suicide bombers, because then it's harder for people in the West to support them. When you, when you think about it, and based on the strategy that I just uh, was talking about, we attack a, a civilian population, and and. Uh, encouraging kind of a civil war between two groups um, in in Israel, um, attacking a civilian population also applied to attacking like the Israelis would come up with a strategy to further demonize Palestinians by killing lots of Israeli civilians themselves mm-hmm. because they had. The, I mean, they don't want to have a, Israel. Such a small country, it doesn't want to have a situation where there is kind of open warfare where they actually have an enemy in the Palestinians that can actually fight back in any effective way and threaten Israel. And the last thing Israel ever wants, if you know its history and the, and the paranoia uh, that, that kind of uh, founded Israel or on which was founded, um, the last thing Israelis wants is, Israelis want, the Israeli elite want is for there ever to be a genuine threat against Israel. So they made sure that they contained the Palestinian threat because, I mean, I'm sure everybody knows the situation there. I mean, it's Palestinian land that Israel was founded on and they're continuing to grab Palestinian land and dispossess Palestinians. So um, the last thing they wanted was uh, for there to be any kind of a real Palestinian opposition. Uh, so they locked it down uh, so that the Palestinians can do virtually nothing to rectify the situation. But at the same time, they wanted to justify, they had to find a way to justify uh, their continued theft of Palestinian land and uh, subjugation of Palestinian pe- people and an installation of an apartheid regime, essentially. There. We have different you know, separate roads for Palestinians and they're summarily executed on a regular basis and uh, the Israelis can bomb. You know. And also to be seen as much as, all, as possible as 
the victim internationally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the victim, exactly, the victim complex and justifying, uh, that part of justifying their, what they are doing, getting away with abusing the Palestinians uh, in terms of international public opinion, they have to be seen to be a victim, to be attacked. But how do you, how do, you do that if you've effectively... Um, Subjugated. Well, effectively, effectively neutered the Palestinian uh, opposition or resistance, and that they can't actually move really without you knowing about it. They can do nothing against you. Uh, it becomes a bit untenable in that situation from, from the point of view of public opinion that you're continuing to occupy their land and take more of their land and abuse them, but they aren't doing anything against you, and they can't do anything against you, and you don't want them to be in a position to do anything really effective against you. So, at that point, you have to do it yourself. That's where the whole kind of self-inflicted wound comes in, where you essentially attack yourself. And that's where uh, uh, they combine that with the demonization, further demonization of the Palestinians. Not only were the Palestinians therefore going to attack Israelis, but they were going to attack them in, going to attack them in a way that was uh, you know, reprehensible to the West, i.e. suicide bombings. So it's quite easy to set that up. I mean, I kind of described it in an, art, in an article somewhere that I wrote um, I think it's called The Myth of the Palestinian Suicide Bomber, um, where they will, because they have such complete access to what's left of Palestine, they can, and they have thousands of Palestinian prisoners, they can take their pick of anybody. Okay, we'll let you out, you know, we'll release you if you do a job for us. We need you to kind of spy for us or whatever. And you can get someone like that too, basically. He's like a puppet on the string, really. Um, <clears throat> so you can get someone like that to... Uh, cross into Israel, allow him into Israel, tell him that he's going to meet uh, someone of importance that he has to give a message to or get a message from in a falafel stand or at a falafel stand or in an Israeli uh, restaurant in Tel Aviv, for example. And so he arrives there at the appointed time uh, with his backpack carrying some documents and um, the restaurant blows up. And there's lots of eyewitnesses to say a Palestinian-looking guy came in uh, with a backpack, and seconds later the place blew up. Of course, you know, on my contention is that on many occasions the Israelis had planted a bomb in the restaurant themselves. And we're watching the guy arriving in the restaurant, and as soon as he walked in, they pushed a button, and the restaurant blew up. Hey, presto, Palestinian suicide bomber. And you can do that as many times as you want, as, as it is deemed uh, necessary from a propaganda point of view, you know, to, to present uh, the Israelis as a victim and to uh, justify their continued... Injustice towards Palestinians. Well, now we understand a bit more the, the motives behind uh, international terrorism, but how then can we make sense of domestic terrorism? When there is mass shooting or mass bombing in the US, the victims are US and the witness are US. It's uh, within the same country, so it's not about uh, creating or legitimizing an enemy, justifying a war, all those motives disappear. So how do you explain this shift? What are the new motives behind a domestic terrorism? If there's any, maybe just uh, some people get, get postal in the end. They get just crazy and they shoot everywhere. And uh, there's, uh, it's not political. It's uh, about psychiatry. There are a few things going on there. Um, <clears throat> Mass shootings on one side, and then you've got domestic terrorist attacks, just simply terrorist attacks on the other. Really, when it comes to terrorist attacks, the U.S. has only suffered two, well, since 9-11. 9-11 itself, and then the Boston bombings. 
I would I would widen that definition simply to if it caused terror, then it's a terrorist attack. The mass shootings would then come under that. Yes. But the official narrative is that the two are unrelated. And now there's another thing, another problem wrapped into all this. Well, yeah, I was going to say, that, I mean, among those shootings, there's the narrative propagated by the media as to whether or not it was linked with somebody who's inspired by bin Laden or if it was uh, simply a homegrown kind of white American crazy person who, in the case of Sandy Hook, uh, did it for no reason whatsoever. Uh, or maybe just because he was supposedly he had Asperger's. Uh, there's no real reason for that one. So there's a few different kind of uh, flavors in there. Yeah, the the mass shooting. I mean, the first big one that I think of is the one in 1999, the Columbine massacre, the school shooting. Mm-hmm. There have been many, many more since then. I think now we're at the point where there's there are at least two mass shootings per month in the U.S. On average, yeah. On average, not all of these are orchestrated by the government. In fact, before we even get to saying which, how do you know then which were orchestrated by the government, it really begins with an open mind and saying, okay, this something terrible has happened. This is what we're being told are the reasons for it. Does it add up? Mm, I'm not so sure. Oh, wait a minute. There's... This evidence isn't fitting. And then working back to look for a political motive. So you're right in that there's no obvious domestic civil war type situation where they're trying to play one side off of the other. Um, When it comes to mass shooting type events, the terrorist attacks, on the other hand, of course, play into the 9-11 narrative, the global war on terror. So in this case, it's about justifying American foreign policy first and foremost. Mm. The wars abroad. Yeah. If we don't, you know, you see the problem we have here. We we have to fight them at home. We have to fight it's everywhere. We have to get them over there before they come here. Yes. Um, but the, I mean, in terms of these terror attacks, like I was just saying, there's some the ones that we describe in the book. Um, some of them are associated with uh, people who were tentatively perhaps influenced by bin Laden or Islamic fundamentalism. I think, I mean, uh, what do you call it? Fort Hood shooter was a Muslim. He was a... Uh, yeah. The, there are, mm-hmm. he, he was, I mean, there was questions there about, you know, he had talked to Al-Aki... Al- uh, the guy who uh, Obama kind of droned. Uh, the American citizen the American turned citizen, cleric yes. who was in Yemen. Yes, yes. Him and his son who were both uh, killed by a drone. This guy Hassan, the Fort Hood shooting was, um, was he had supposedly listened, watched his videos or had some contact with him, you know, so there was that kind of connection. But in terms of all these shootings in the US, um, whether or not they are associated in some way with Bin Laden or Islamic fundamentalism, as it's described, or whether they are uh, simply just a person going crazy and killing lots of people for some 
unspecified or not very good reason. Um, they all seem to, they all have a, obviously, an obvious effect on the American population and they have an effect on American society over the past 10 years and it has coincided with 9-11. 9-11 is that moment when it all happened both uh, across the world in terms of the expansion of America and its occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan and other places and also the kind of imposition of draconian legislation in the U.S. Uh, initially to to protect the people from another terrorist attack like 9-11 and then that's kind of bolstered by other non-Muslim associated shootings and uh, there are also terror attacks because there are attacks on the civilian population but they're not associated with uh, Osama bin Laden let's say the general generalization uh, so you see since 9-11 well really before 9-11 but since 9-11 a definite uh, expansion by the US around the world to grab as much land and resources and control of populations as possible, but we see also that that was also used, 9-11 was used to do that, but it was also used to do exactly the same thing back at home. So that's the kind of thing that I suppose a lot of people don't really realize is that that this is really is a war on the American people as well. 9-11 declared war on the on, on Arab terrorism, or, uh, it was a war on on Muslim terrorism or terrorism in general, but that was also uh, that also applied to the U.S. Um, of course, you get below this, and there is no such thing as terrorism, really, and that it's essentially a, 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 a justification or a, a, an excuse to go around dominating, controlling, and squeezing people around the world, including in the U.S. That's that's the that's the real motivation. Um, the whole Muslim terror threat is obviously practically, virtually, I mean, it's virtually non-existent in any effective way. Uh, there's no way that any group anywhere in the world has the capacity, any Muslim or Arab group in the world has the capacity or even the, most of them the, the desire to attack America. Um, but that's what's presented by the government as a way to uh, concentrate their control and to refine their control of as many people as possible, including in the U.S. I mean, we don't have to probably don't have to list all of the legislation that has been passed in the U.S. as a result of 9/11, uh, and as a result of this continuation of this scaremongering and supposed terror threat that could happen at any moment, at any time, you know. Um, but I mean, there have been, apart from the, the cases, the major cases of shootings that we talk about in the, in the book, there's been dozens of other terror plots that have been uh, exposed or found out by the FBI and the They've US. They've been busted wide open by the FBI. Busted wide, wide open by the FBI. And if you look at every single one of them, uh, virtually every single one of them were the creation of the FBI. Uh, they went looking for someone who would be amenable or would be I'm just going to be frank here and say stupid enough to to uh, agree to uh, an FBI um, FBI agent posing as an Al Qaeda operative or a, an FBI informant uh, telling this person they pick some kind of lower than average intelligence uh, person and, you know of of little means, little economic means, 
a kind of or, or someone who was had been in trouble with the law who was a, a kind of a, a punk type thing you know going around uh they're going who may have shown some allegiance or some kind of an interest in, in Islam, maybe have converted to Islam after trying every other religion beforehand, converse to Islam. And, you know, they find them and they have informants in, in mosques in, in various cities around, uh, around the U.S. and they pick up, pick the one that's most likely and then suggest to him that he wants to blow up the Sears Tower, for example, and then, you know, give him, you know, spin him a line, spin him a story, keep him kind of hanging on promises of money and weapons and all this kind of stuff and uh, and eventually and tape all the conversations and then give him a, a car with a supposed bomb in it, have him drive it to a location, have him push a button. Nothing happens, obviously, because it's an FBI bomb and then FBI agents jump out of the bushes and grab him and he goes to jail for 35 years, you know. So these are people who are extremely impressionable, uh, extremely naive, and they are grist for the terror mill for for creating this, uh, this these dozens of terror plots that have, have occurred over the past uh, ten years, really, in the U.S. Mm. And that's all exposed or presented to the American population as evidence of the of all this stuff going on under our society. Look well, at the work we're doing to stop it from yeah, coming to the fore. But also the clear and present danger of there being a a real terror threat. And a lot of these plots did involve people who, in some way or other. Uh, were associated with uh, Islam or uh, as part of the grooming process of the of the of the entrapment process. Very often they would be uh, asked to swear an oath to Al Qaeda, the FBI had made up, um, and that's all taped and presented to the court afterwards. These guys, um, you know, they're they're definite patsies in, in, in a very literal uh, definition of the word patsy. Uh, they're used and sent to jail um, by the FBI in order to promote the fake reality of there being a terror threat to the American people that the American people need their authorities to protect them from. Uh, so, some of the cases are they're just absurd. I mean, there's one guy, that, the, the Times Square nearly bomber, I forget his name, but he was, I mean, he was, I think he was born in the States, so he's Pakistani-American. He's basically American. He's grown up, he dresses like a Westerner, wears shades and drives around in a nice car. And they somehow roped him into driving a car with two cylinders of some liquid that was not explosive in the back, rigged up to fireworks he had purchased in a store somewhere on the side of the road in Pennsylvania. He gets into Times Square and, you know, they pounce on him and he's nabbed. And they've got a press alerted to be there beforehand to take photos and mm-hmm. the whole thing. And it's a media event. And you're like, you know, this is obviously jarring. It's obviously unreal. But by the time anyone is really looking at it. Oh, they come home from work, they turn on the news. It's been worked up into another near miss and that's all you hear. Those little details about fireworks and cylinders full of water or something, uh, eh, it's just details. They're just facts. It doesn't matter in our new, we create reality as we go along world. <clears throat> if I currently understand this, um, this- domestic uh, mass shootings 
our way to impose a more and more totalitarian regime in the U.S., but we see this trend in the rest of the world, regimes that are more and more repressive. So why this wave of mass shootings is almost solely focused on the U.S. land? Well, you see, the shootings are kind of different in that it's a lot harder. In fact, you should start from the premise that it was what they said it was because you have very little evidence to show otherwise. Somebody goes nuts, takes a gun, easily available in the States, goes into a school, a store, an office building, and starts shooting it up. And certainly at this point, it's credible in some respects that somebody's just gone nuts because the whole country is so stressed. Um, but... Well, the fact is, in almost every case that we detail in the book, uh, there were initial media reports and eyewitness reports, media reports citing eyewitnesses yeah. of there being more than one shooter. But every uh, every case that we cover in the book is officially a uh, lone gunman. Yeah. But uh, in every single one of them, there was eyewitness reports of someone else involved who then kind of disappeared into the into the ether and no more was said about him or her, whoever it was. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one piece of evidence that suggests that it's not, the official story is not the real story. Um, so, and with well, the other evidence that we detail, we kind of conclude that while this was a, another, this was a manufactured uh, act of terrorism, manufactured by some segment or element of the of the authorities for a specific purpose and the specific purpose being to terrorize the rest of the American population and um, force them to submit to increasingly draconian controlling legislation uh, so that they won't so that they won't um, you know they won't complain about it they won't willingly go to their to their virtual prisons uh, you know, without without complaint or without revolt, you know. I mean, we saw the Occupy Wall Street. Uh, that's the kind of thing they want to avoid, you know. Uh, as they increasingly, as, as as they continue to to impose their their will and their control in the population, which involves stripping the population of its wealth um, and funneling the population, uh, the the wealth of the, of the country up to the top of the pyramid. Eventually, they assume that people will complain a little bit, start to complain. So they, they want to either uh, put the people into a state of kind of compliance, fear-based compliance, that they won't complain about it, they'll accept the abuse uh, without doing anything, without revolting. Um, or, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, we... <clears throat> the, the mass shootings is, in this case, there, there's no obvious political connection. You, you right. can't identify. Can I finish it. the point? Okay. They want to stop them actually revolting, or they want to have the legislation in place where they can beat the heads of people who do revolt, or they can essentially, like they did with Occupy Wall Street, uh, in a hundred cities across the U.S. in one night, basically wipe it away through force. And yeah, there's nothing anybody can do about it. 
terrorizing the population in order to enforce more draconian uh, policies, liberticide policies. Uh, according to some uh, conspiracy theorists, actually the objective is uh, none of that. It's simply to uh, enforce some uh, more draconian uh, gun control because uh, it makes some sense because the elites are afraid of a looming rebellion and if there's a gun control, therefore the civilians cannot get arms and they cannot rebel efficiently. Oops, I think we have a caller, so we're going to take the caller now. Hello caller, what's your name and can you tell us where you're calling us from? Yes, hello, hello. Can, you, can you hear us? Yes, I'm just we're here. Okay, well, have a nice uh, listening session. Um, the question I was asking... Another caller, a second uh, caller, or not listener at least. Uh, hello, can you hear us? What's your name and I where are you hear calling you. us Can from? you hear me? Perfectly. Okay, just I, I'm not going to say much because uh, I talk too long sometimes on your thing, but I just wanted to bring up the point that I think a lot of these mass shootings are to take guns away. I think the U.S. government wants to get rid of guns like Australia and, and uh, Britain and um, and Russia did in Stalin times. Uh, I think that's what the shootings are about. That's it. Yeah, uh, very good. Thanks, thanks for your question. And yeah, actually, that's thanks. along the line of the question I was uh, I was asking. It's a good way to get uh, to not empower civilians. You prevent the sales of guns so they cannot rebel, and then they're easily controllable. Okay, well, I have a question in return. Where is that gun control legislation? Oh, but today you're the guest, so the, uh, you can, you're not allowed to. The point, the point I'm making is that all these freedoms, civil liberties, basic civil rights have been stripped in the last 10 years with, with plenty of guns on the market. Without a shot fired. Yeah, but after those mass shootings, maybe there's been more stringent, more constraining legislation. Oh, there's talk about it. Control. They talk about it. I think it, it's a way to divide the population and to have them fighting about something that ultimately is kind of insignificant. Because after Sandy Hook and after several of these mass shootings, and in particular Sandy Hook, um, there were a lot of people who came out against... Uh, gun ownership or at least limiting gun ownership yes. in some way, passing legislation and this caused a lot of uh, furor and uh, angst among many gun owners in the US and what do you call them um, Charlton Heston, you know, from my cold dead hand um, so yeah, it creates a lot of division among people and a lot of uh, it creates a, a topic or a, a kind of point over which people can argue and uh, talk about liberty and you know the freedom, the Second Amendment, the freedom to carry weapons, and this is what America is all about. And while people are arguing about that, they're not actually passing any laws. Uh, it may seem to some people that they're threatening to do that, but they're not passing any laws. They haven't passed any laws in in most states uh, where people are not allowed to carry guns anymore. It doesn't seem to me that it's even on the horizon ever in the U.S. that gun ownership would be forbidden or that it would be uh, the lo laws will be passed in such a way that uh, gun ownership law, uh, gun ownership is restricted in the same way it's restricted in Europe. I think America will always have guns. Uh, so the thing is, while people are arguing about this, 
the other kind of legislation and the other programming and the other controls that are being put in place that have nothing to do with guns continue. And no one complains about those. No one complained about the NDAA, about the Patriot Act, because that was all for your safety, right? People were willing to go along with that, even though these, these laws that I, that I just described that were passed and are now law in the U.S. that give the actual uh, the, the forces of law and order in the U.S. massive power and control over the population. Uh, no one complained about that because supposedly they think it's for their protection. Yeah. Then they think, well, as long as I have my gun, well, I don't mind if policemen have guns. If something I want to know is how many of the 400,000 foreclosed homes in the last five years were owned by gun owners. Homes that were taken away on the basis of pure outright theft by Wall Street. Not one single shot was fired. I mean, their gun is supposed to protect your property, your life, your liberty. Mm-hmm. And they're now in 10 cities with the gun by their side. There's still no shots fired. I mean, the idea that it's going to protect you against the evil power of the bee. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, no. I think it's a minority of people who actually think that, who think that they're gonna, they want to keep their their assault rifles for the showdown, the final showdown against the the illegitimate government in the U.S. And what is it, 1776 will rise again if you try to take our guns away, according to Alex Jones. You know that there's going to be a revolution uh, with the ordinary people with their guns against the government, the government forces. Um, I don't think most people who own guns in the U.S. have guns for that reason. I think they have guns for their own personal protection, and this goes to a deeper problem in the U.S., and not just in the U.S., of, um, of the state of society and the amount of violence and non-state, essentially, violence um, that occurs in the U.S., um, where Gun- there's a lot of you know, robbery and uh, shootings and you know, attacks and rapes and all that kind of stuff, not just in the U.S., but particularly in the U.S. It, it, it gets a high profile. It gets a lot of press in the U.S. because there's so many guns. Because when those crimes occur, there's more people who can whip out a gun and shoot the attacker. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of bone of contention, and that should be allowed. But if you wanted to really get to the heart of it, you'd have to ask the question as to why uh, society is in such a state where so many people feel that they need to carry a gun for their protection in a civilized society. What's wrong with that society? And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this who have no problem with uh, living in the U.S. who have no desire to carry a gun because they feel quite safe in their communities. But I think there are a lot of people, particularly in maybe big cities and stuff, and different parts of the U.S. who do feel that, you know, when they're walking down the street, uh, it might be useful to have a gun in your purse or in your belt. Uh, but that, for me, that's the problem. It's not whether or not uh, arguing about whether or not you should have a gun or whether guns should be allowed um, isn't, the, isn't the question. It's the question of why do people feel they need to have guns right. in the first place, you know? And then there's all the sports shooters, people who just do it for recreation, you know? Uh, but I think they would be a minority as well, everything else being equal. If there was no real fear in, in communities across the U.S. and people didn't feel they needed to carry a gun for their own protection on the streets, I think there would be a lot less guns in the U.S. because I think most people... Uh, I don't think the majority of the population or even even 50% of the population are gun enthusiasts in the sense that they go every weekend down to the range to to shoot them, you know. 
So the problem is on a social level and uh, people fearing there being a lot of violence, a lot of crime and uh, people feeling justified in owning a gun to protect themselves. Of course, there's violence in other countries in Europe, etc., but people don't have guns, generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, but there's also a lot of, even the criminals, a lot of criminals don't have guns. Uh, people who would do muggings and stuff, but generally speaking, don't have guns. They pull out knives. So almost as much kind of personal attacks or attacks on, uh, on civilians like muggings and robberies and stuff happen in the UK, for example, as in the US uh, per, per, per capita, but um, it's not, it doesn't escalate to the point of, you know, where there's a shooting, where someone gets shot or shot dead. Uh, because, generally speaking, in the UK, for example, most criminals have knives or something like that, and the person being attacked doesn't have a gun. So the person being attacked just gives the money, and there you go. In the US, a criminal is more, more likely to have a gun, and there's a higher chance that the attackee, the person being attacked, will have a gun, and then you have a shootout, and then it gets into the media. Although that's not usually the kind of event that pops up in the media. Usually it's someone with a gun against others with no guns. Yeah. Which is an argument for people having guns. But it gets back to the problem of there shouldn't be people running around with guns shooting people. There shouldn't be so much crime. You know, yeah. the U.S. shouldn't have the, the largest prison population in the world. There's a lot of problems in, in U.S. society that have nothing to do essentially with, with the gun debate. You know? I mean, that's not a solution. If you want to improve your society, you don't say, let's just arm everybody. Yeah. But to answer your question, no. I, we doubt it, that that is the first objective of doing some of these mass shootings. It's, it's terror for terror's sake. It's the same rationale for false flag, false flag bombing attacks that are blamed on another country or a segment of society. Yeah. Just taken to the next level, and they simply realize, well, hold on, we don't really need kind of cover story. Let's just strip it down. It's unmasked, pure terror, terrorize the population. And in that climate of hysteria that comes with it, it's far easier to get things done. You can get away with doing things that 15 years ago, people would never have accepted. About the guns, actually, in your book, you develop a theory that is almost opposite to the banning gun conspiracies. And you mentioned that after Sandy Hook events, the sales in guns surged, increased by a dramatic factor. And uh, actually, one of the purposes of those events might be to get the civilians to be armed. So there is some violent rebellion and there is a legitimate reason to, uh, to take uh, drastic measures by the army and the police against those uh, rebels. Are you still uh, sticking to this, um, to this point? Did we say that? <laughs> Um, that sounds well, like a conspiracy well, too far. No, they, they, there was a surgeon gun. Yes, yes, yes. But that's more of a reaction. That's an understandable yeah. reaction because, yeah. okay, now they're going to clamp down on guns. Quick, get them while you can. Look, put it this way. It's the same thing as fear. Yes. It's, it's, it's all about instilling fear because the person who, in response to Sandy Hook, goes out and buys a gun is a more fearful person. It doesn't matter if they have a gun or not. I mean, it, the fact that they have a gun means that they are more fearful. Beforehand, they didn't think about carrying a gun. Therefore, they didn't feel as insecure on the streets. After Sandy Hook, now they're thinking more often, or it's in the back of their mind, school shootings, mall shootings, office shootings, whatever, and they carry a gun. 
and the gun in their purse or on their belt is a constant reminder of why they should be afraid. Job done. Okay. Um, now, when reading your book, something that, uh, that is quite striking is that almost systematically during those mass shootings, there is an official story that is uh, quite different from the real story. Came to it that almost all the time the real story is the same during all those mass shooting events, and the official story is the same. And it goes back to, uh, I mean, I'm not expert of the field, but uh, even when you think about JFK assassination or uh, Bob Kennedy assassination, it's still the same modus operandi, it's still the same cover story. So can you describe what is a typical official story and a typical real story? Just before we do, something to keep in mind is that the real story is not actually known. This is where a lot of people have a problem and they feel this need to bust it wide open. Oh, I found a smoking gun. Now we know exactly who did it, how they did it, why they did it. The, the hard thing, even historically, JFK is... It's, it's well established there was a conspiracy of people in power to remove him. That's acceptable. That's accepted among people who are aware of it. But actually naming the names, the weapons used, how they did it, that's still unknown. We still don't know how many people were involved, you know, what guns were used. And the same applies for recent mass shootings as well. All we can say with any kind of certainty, story they're telling us, is conflicted by the facts, at least as the facts were presented to us. We have to also keep in mind, we may not have the facts. It may be that another police officer who arrived on the scene and said, yeah, I saw three shooters, for any kind of reason is confused. It's unlikely. But still, you keep in mind that the real story is, is still in the air, you know? Mm-hmm. So in terms of, yeah, the repeating modus operandi, well, the thing that keeps coming up is, is mind control. Um, it means so many different things to different people, but uh, we can all agree that the CIA certainly was experimenting and trying to figure out ways to get people to do something they would not ordinarily do in the 50s and 60s. These programs officially ended. Just one point, when you say mind control, is mind control, is it the Patsy who would be the official shooter or are these the real shooters? Uh, either or. It's either uh, or. Both. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so everybody's mind control there. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, I mean, it's, no, just, I mean, the Patsy would be, I mean, this is, it's amazing. It's part of kind of psychology or um, psychotherapy hypnosis, you know, is, is a standard part of it and it's been well documented that people can be put into a, a kind of a hypnotic trance, not like a zombie, but <clears throat> basically uh, given, <clears throat> put into a, a, a state of, uh, okay, you can call it hypnotic trance. Maybe people have experienced it. It's not something bizarre. I mean, you can go for hypnosis to stop, uh, you know, stop smoking, not that you want to, but, you know, for any other problem and you can have suggestions implanted in that state where you will, you know, apparently, uh, that will apparently solve your problems. You know, at a subconscious level is talking to you at a level that's below consciousness that you're not consciously aware of, but that 
uh, you will act on, you know. And there's a guy in the UK who has a show, he's called Darren Brown, and he went through a, a process of actually <clears throat> creating a, a, essentially a mind-controlled patchy gunman where he uh, had a guy and he took him through the hypnotic process on, on several occasions and went through all of the uh, uh, suggestive, suggestive uh, process to the point where uh, he did actually stand up in a in a theatre, not a movie theatre, at, at a play or a show, and pull a plastic gun out of his belt and pull the trigger at, uh, at the guy on stage. And everybody knew about this. It was all the only person who didn't know what was going on was the guy who was, who was hypnotised. He thought it was a real gun. Yeah, he thought it was a real gun. Well, whether or not he even thought it was a real gun is kind of irrelevant. He just did what he was told to do. You know, I mean, there may be some element of some understanding that it's a gun, but the very basic, simplistic. At that subconscious level, your subconscious works in rather primitive kind of uh, stimuluses and uh, stimuli and, and, and suggestions, you know. So uh, whatever he understood, he followed the instructions. He could have pulled a banana. He could have been encouraged to pull a banana or told that he was, had to pull a banana out of his belt and point it at the stage and, you know, or throw it at someone, and he would have done that as well. But point being, uh, you can get people, some people, you can get them, pretty much to do whatever you want by hypnosis. And, and that's just standard, fairly basic hypnosis that's practiced when you go to a hypnotherapist for, for whatever problem you have. Uh, but, I mean, there's a program, uh, a CAA program, MK Ultra, that's fairly well known. Um, and that, uh, I think that started in the 1950s, but probably beforehand, actually. But And it continued on, supposedly, into the 70s when it was stopped, but it probably didn't stop. And there's decades of research into uh, hypnotically controlling people or or controlling people, getting people to do things that they wouldn't normally do uh, via some kind of hypnotic uh, suggestion. So, yeah, for me, that's a kind of moot point. It's it's taken as read that that is possible. Example. Another example that maybe a lot of people don't know about is um, Sirhan Sirhan, uh, who shot uh, Robert Kennedy. Um, his lawyer uh, at the time, this is maybe 20 years ago, he's changed lawyers since then, but his lawyer at the time um, had tests on Sirhan Sirhan um, by another hypnotist while he was in jail. And the hypnotist was able to quickly... Uh, put him into a hypnotic trance. Some people are very suggestible in that sense, and Sirhan Sirhan was. And in the jail cell, uh, his lawyer had the hypnotist come in, put him into a trance, and tell him uh, that when he touched him on the forehead, he would jump up the bars and act like a monkey. And uh, when he touched him on the head, Sirhan Sirhan jumped up in the bars and acted like a monkey. And, and when he asked him, his lawyer said, Sirhan, who told you to do that? And he said, no one. I did it uh, of my own volition. So, and I'm sure there's many other, there are many other examples of the reality of that, of getting someone to act in an in a automatic way that they're not aware of. And you can literally get them to do anything. So the idea that if it was deemed necessary, uh, the powers that be would find someone like this who is quite suggestible and through kind of a grooming procedure follow through with this process of programming them essentially to go into a school or wherever and either shoot a gun or simply be there with a gun 
while other people or another person does the shooting and then escapes. And the patsy is then left. Mm-hmm. There is, it's very plausible, very possible. The only thing that you could argue, the only argument I can think of against it would be that they wouldn't do that. That it's the moral aspect of it that <clears throat> a person would not be able to believe, a member of the public or someone listening to this, would not be able to believe, not that it can't be done, but that it wouldn't be done. That uh, such a crime against innocent people, and for example in the case of Sandy Hook, against children, is so heinous that um, it's not possible that anybody would follow through on such a plan. But there, <laughs> that's a matter of belief, uh, essentially, or you know, wanting to believe that your leaders and the authorities are ultimately good people and they wouldn't do such terrible things. Uh, that's a very dangerous position to hold, especially given the ad- evidence that uh, uh, <laughs> that our, our leaders aren't exactly the most moral of people. I mean, they don't hold the same, to the same moral standard that the average person does, you know. I mean, you see the glimpses of it here and there. Uh, for example, um, Hillary Clinton you know, delighting in the in the in the death of the public execution, the public brutal execution of, of Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, she was on on tape, uh, delighting in that. I mean, that's that's got to raise some questions about about the kind of person Hillary Clinton is and what she would uh, what she would do and what she wouldn't do if it involved her getting what she wanted. So that's why I say it's a very dangerous position. And but the facts are, it's possible. MK Ultra is a fancy sounding. Kind of the program, sure it exists and all that kind of stuff, but at this stage, it's a no-brainer. It's there's there's no question that people can be hypnotized effectively and in different ways at, to different levels to do whatever the hypnotizer wants. Uh, okay, so it's technically feasible. The next problem people might have with it is well, okay, how I mean, how do they go about grooming? I mean, do they just go into any any one person and how do they pick them and the answer to that is, is partly historical. When they were doing laboratory experiments in the 50s and 60s, it gave them, who's them even? I mean, it came together partly. You had the CIA, of course, but they were working with hundreds, if not thousands, of different psychiatrists, doctors, uh, experts in their own particular field. Many of them on the way they were even being funded by the CIA or receiving financing from some big Wall Street hotshot. And it created this massive network that I have no reason to believe is not still in existence today because by the 70s, you had major pharmaceutical companies, the drugs they created that became the household names, they were born of the trial and error with these patches they used in the 50s and 60s. Mm. So you've got layers upon layers. You've got a structure. There is an infrastructure in place. Uh, let's take Adam Lanza easy target. He spent most of his life in uh, this particular care of specialists in certain institutions. Uh, You go all the way back to Lee Harvey Oswald, who spent some time in a hospital that was a known CIA Mm -hmm. safe house or something Mm -hmm. in New York City. So it's actually, it's it's unbelievably easy Mm -hmm. for them to just dip in here, dip in there, and set something up. They've got maybe a hundred million people in the U.S. to pick from, you know. <laughs> so it's not it's not difficult. I mean, but it, for example, that's what Neil was saying is true. I mean, in terms of the 
the, the research. There's all sorts of homeless people and down and outs, people who have left home, people who have with, with uh, psychological issues and stuff who, you know, they're prey for, for these people. Inmates in prisons, you know, uh, promising them various different yep. things. Um, I mean, in terms of these terror plots that were associated with the war on terror in the U.S., there was one example is the um, from 2006, the Miami terror cell. Uh, this is a plot that the FBI uncovered about these guys who were supposedly planning to, uh, in their own words, well, not in their words, in the words of, of, the def- of the prosecution, were planning to wage a full ground war against the U.S. These were six guys, and they alone were going to wage a oh. full ground war against But you can imagine, when you read about them, that these guys yeah, would have had these kind of delusions, you know, um, or could have been induced to have these kind of delusions. But when you get down to it... Uh, it gets a bit more, a bit more murky because uh, these were those six of them, the Miami terror cell, and they're all a little bit deranged. Um, the leader of them, uh, his father said he needs psychiatric help and has done for a long, had done for a long time beforehand. But anyway, they were um, they were Christian Zionist Muslim martial artist immigrants. Uh, they called themselves the Sea of David, and they were pretty much quietly living in a warehouse in Florida. Uh, they were awaiting the fulfillment of biblical end times, biblical end times prophecy. And then one day they were identified by the FBI <coughs> and uh, uh, undercover FBI agent. Agent went down and offered them fifty thousand dollars. These are guys who are living in a warehouse, very poor. So the first up, he offers them fifty thousand dollars. That gets their attention, right? Uh, then he initiated them into Al-Qaeda, uh, complete with a, an oath-swearing ceremony. Uh, he provi- the FBI provided them with military boots and a video camera and suggested that they wanted to uh, blow up certain government buildings. Uh, one of them was the Sears Tower in Chicago. Um, so that was pretty much it. Uh, that's as far as it went. Uh, all of the discussions were taped by the FBI and then all of them went to court and all of them went to jail for 25 or 35 years. And, I mean, you know, just think of some people in your community, like, I mean, I don't want to be crude, but think of uh, someone who, who you describe or you might have seen as, as as a village idiot, you know. That's the people who are, who constitute the, the terror threat uh, and have constituted the terror threat in, in the U.S., the homegrown terror threat for the past seven or eight years. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty sad, really, you know. But it gets, it, it allows for the media and the government to present this idea of uh, there being a very, very clear and imminent threat at any moment uh, of terrorism to the American people, and they manufacture it themselves. That's why the book's called "Manufactured Terror" because that's exactly what it is. When you look at it, no one could come to any other conclusion that this is entrapment and. Uh, completely fabricated uh, from the ground up. I mean, <sighs> something we've grappled with is to try to understand the mindset, let's say, of at least some of the people who put these things into motion because you're still left with the problem that most people have when they hear this kind of thing. It's like, well, you're talking about a big conspiracy. That's a lot of people to keep quiet. And it's true. Practically speaking, the, the typical MO 
I keep thinking of the Oklahoma City bombing. There you had Timothy McVeigh drive, or allegedly with someone else or alone, drive a truck loaded with explosives outside the building, goes off. Now, little reported at the time, but it's well established now, was that there was a concurrent FBI investigation tracking a whole group of people, Timothy McVeigh, Nichols, and others, as part of an attempted uh, infiltration of a local militia. Sorry, different militias from across the country, but they were based locally in Oklahoma at the time. And McVeigh, it seemed, was seated in there as a kind of informant, and he would be reporting back amongst others as well. The place was riddled with informants, apparently. But the point I'm trying to make is that they were fully aware that there was a truck with explosives going to this destination. It was supposed to be a sting operation. There was some mix-up, and boom, it actually went off. I can imagine that most of the people, the police, FBI, federal, federal authorities, putting this into place did not expect something to actually manifest from it. They thought they were involved in a sting operation, yeah. like all of these FBI operations that foil plots, which are ludicrous. You get a lot of people to go along with it, in that yeah. sense. A lot, of, a lot of people in yeah. you know, police forces and the FBI and the CIA, a lot of underlings to yeah. go along with it on, in, in the in, belief that it's a sting operation. But there's another you know, kind of more shady group that are actually uh, controlling it and... They are the ones who allow it to happen, let it continue on past where it was meant to be stopped, you know. The same was true of the World Trade Center. Uh, in 93. 93 bombing. That was meant to be all of the bomb. All the bombing materials were supplied by the FBI. This is something that's amazing because people don't people think it was terrorists that blew that up. The terrorists were, that was part of a sting operation and the terrorists were, the bomb was supplied by the FBI that, that detonated at the, at the World Trade Center. Yeah. Uh, but it was meant to be a dud. But somehow someone switched it with a real one. And no one really questions that, you know. But anyway, but talking, just going back to the MK Ultra kind of uh, mind programming thing was the um, when was it 2011, late 2011, wasn't it the Knicker bomber, um, the underwear bomber, I should say. This is a guy who got in a plane in Amsterdam mm. um, and attempted to detonate a bomb in his underpants. It wasn't really a bomb; it was um, kind of explosive material that required a. Uh, something more than a fuse and a matchstick to ignite. So he just kind of set his underpants on fire on the plane. Um, but this was heralded as, you know, <laughs> as, as as being, you know, caught in the nick of time. You know, the whole plane could have gone down. It was potentially a catastrophe for everybody. But there was a guy, um, a guy called, uh, he's a Dutch filmmaker who was on the flight, Jasper Scheringa. Uh, and he he tackled uh, the guy knicker bomber underwear bomber pants bomber whatever you want to call it, it was Ab- Abdul Matalab and uh, he tackled him just this Dutch guy tackled him and took his clothes off and made sure he had no more hidden explosives and uh, but he said that um, that when he looked at him he saw he smelled some smoke or smelled a strange smell from the seat behind him and and looked around and um, he said he was. He said that the the, knicker, the underbomber was staring into nothing. He was just had this blank staring into nothing look in his face, 
and that he said he was actually on fire, but showed no reaction whatsoever. Wow. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, I mean, you can get people to, I mean, another, that's another example of, of hypnosis. You can get people mm-hmm. to withstand kind of, you know, extreme cold. They tend to go for extreme cold, um, but, uh, or even in surgery, uh, people mm-hmm. can be desensitized to pain uh, through hypnosis and have been. So this is another example of someone who's sitting there on fire and just doesn't know what's going on, and he's just used as a, uh, as a patsy again um, to provide a, a, a terror scare and, you know, everybody be afraid and it could happen to you and, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Oh, well, we better look to the authorities for protection. Just, you know, don't make any noise. Don't complain. Just keep your head down. And if they pass any more kind of Nazi-style uh, legislation just you know it's for your own good and you know there's scary people out there who like their underpants and and uh, you're talking about some mass shootings that might be the result of someone getting crazy just that no conspiracy and I was thinking is it possible to imagine that uh, you have some individuals in the US who get uh, some uh, some uh, hypnotic program, MK Ultra or MK Ultra like they have this uh, shooting hypnotic program embedded in their mind and actually the program goes on uh, involuntarily though it's not triggered, you know. Maybe you read about the Green Bomb program and what yeah, do you think yeah, about um, this possibility? Absolutely possible. I mean this is unknown territory. How many people were subjected to this kind of treatment in quotes? Um, it's 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 very possible that you have people who just go off. Yeah. But it's because of a condition induced in them prior, and then that's 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 a specific. That still requires another one human being to consciously do it to another. But then there's another layer in our super high tech age. In quotes, there's harp. There's atrocious diet there are all these extra uh, mass factors people are bombarded with um, EM waves of some form or another even just in the form of being surrounded by media that's constantly lying to them it's uh, it's it's no coincidence that you can get a mass shooting and then a spate of them in subsequent days in other parts of the country uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, actually, this to uh, another question I was wondering about. In modern societies, particularly in the U.S., you have this uh, very toxic food. You have this uh, high pollution. You have those, all those radiations. You have this widespread prescription drugs. You have those uh, brainwashing medias. So why do you need uh, fabricated manufactured terrorism to get consent? Does fear has a very specific role in a human psychology that's those other factors, nutrition, drugs, media that we mentioned previously, have not? Well, I, would, I would say that the uh, that fear is uh, a great leveler because, um, you know, you can try and dumb people down through education and getting them addicted to, you know, I don't know, computer games or feed them you know, really crappy food, tell them crappy food is good for them and stuff. But 
uh, I don't think they there's a kind of feedback mechanism there where people only go so far if they start to have you know they start to lose the kind of rational thought or rational thinking that will try and self-medicate to some extent or try and find out what's going on you know but fear is a fear is insidious in the sense that it's itself it's uh, it's self-medication in that way in the sense that people accept it as for their own good i mean it's, they see real events these are apparently very real shootings very real terror attacks or they're told so and uh, people will decide therefore that to be afraid is 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 the right response is good for them you know um and they'll never as long as the terror attacks continue as long as the the threat is there they will continue to uh to administer that kind of uh, that uh, to continue to believe uh, that that is the right thing to do whereas you know if people start eating bad food or you know if people you know parents or some in, in terms of their children and video games and that kind of thing, there's some kind of regulation perhaps and, and food. Some people may wake up to, well, you know, I'm not going to eat that crap anymore. And there is some awareness that certain foods are bad for you and stuff, you know. People indulge in them, but a lot of people are aware that they're, they're not so good for you and should eat healthy and stuff. I don't think the things you described are an effective way to, to fully control the population, but fear uh, very much is uh, belief, you know. Uh, like no one believes that... Uh, mac and cheese out of a box is good for you. You know, they would eat it, but they don't necessarily say, this is the best thing I can eat, you know. But they would say that, you know, uh, well, if there's a terror attack, we need to, we need, we need more police on the streets. The police need bigger guns to deal with this, you know what I mean? Because it's, there's objective evidence there for them, you know. Um, I was going to say something uh, about the the MK Ultra type thing that it goes beyond it seems to have gone beyond and I'm not surprised that it's gone beyond or if it has gone beyond mere hypnotism um, in the traditional sense because they've been doing it for so many decades investigating it researching it for so many decades um, there there was the Navy Yard shooter uh, was that last year? yes September last shooter. year that guy said that he was hearing voices in his head um, and that he thought that he was uh, being subject to, I think he even mentioned... Uh, he said he was coming back from somewhere on a flight and somebody had beamed something at him on the airplane and it was as a result of this, he was now hearing voices in his head. He told his employer, a private contractor, so they said they took him a face... No, they assumed that it was the voices from... Uh, the thin walls in the hotel room, so they moved him to a new hotel. It was mm. still happening. He reported himself again and went in for treatment, and someone gave him some drugs. Yeah, which made it worse. So, I mean, of course you can explain that away because genuine schizophrenia, for example, does involve people hearing voices in their heads and other, you know, psychological disorders, but. I mean, again, we, we don't want to get into that because, you know, I think schizophrenia is essentially a social disease. I mean, it's not so much a, a genetic disorder or it, it's more to do with society and, and the way society treats people these days. But um, but I think there's more there's more than enough evidence that uh, that the beaming of voices, in fact, there's, there's scientific papers that, that uh, scientific experiments have been done long before now to show that it is possible to um, to project sounds into people's heads uh, it's through the use of a certain 
frequency of, of uh, it's kind of like microwave, essentially, and it moves the uh, <clears throat> it moves the eardrum, uh, vibrates the eardrum in a certain way that is consistent with the uh, vibrations that you would that you receive from human speech. So apparently, it's quite easy to mimic human speech through the vibration of the eardrum at a distance with a wave and form words in people's heads so that people basically hear words being spoken in their ear as they, as they normally would, but there's no one there. Um, the other notable case of that happening was the Boston Marathon bombings where uh, the, where the older brother said that he had been hearing voices in his head that there were uh, voices in the head telling him voices in his head telling him to do things that he didn't want to do, etc. Um, so that's another case. Uh, I think Sirhan Sirhan also heard voices in his head. Um, so that's a technology that's available. Uh, so you don't even necessarily need to have direct contact with a person to, you know, to at least kind of drive them a bit nuts, drive them a bit crazy to the point where they're more susceptible and can be more easily controlled or even even uh, whether they'll do something crazy, you know, uh, at the very least. And again, we should note that these people are patsies. They don't, generally speaking, they don't, or on many occasions, they don't actually carry out the attack for which they are blamed. They are just uh, manipulated in some way to be there, to be at the scene, kind of like the Palestinian suicide bomber, uh, to be there. They want a person at the scene that they can pin the blame on uh, for an operation that, that the, the intel agencies have themselves pre-established and pre-planned and, and laid out. Um, I think that is the case with the, with the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, because, go ahead. Yeah, t- talking about Boston Marathon bombing, um, and, uh, a question relating to this event. We, a lot of people have difficulties to reconcile the fact that on one hand, yeah, the, the elites probably need control, they want control, so they want to terrorize the population, but on the other side, they have difficulties to believe that the elites would be able to carry operation where they kill civilians and children indiscriminately. And one way to reconcile those two points is the Boston Marathon bombing. You stage a terrorist attack a mass bombing, but actually there's no victim, it's only actors. Fake blood and uh, fake injuries, and everybody is happy. I mean, you don't kill anyone, but at the same time you terrorize the population and you get what you want, more control. So uh, that might be a solution. Well, I think the premise is a bit faulty in that um, the elite have a problem with killing people. Yeah, why go through all that effort not to kill anyone when you're indifferent to it? But there was almost no blood, and the blood didn't have the right color, and this guy, Bowman, that was evacuated <laughs> on his wheelchair. Pierre, you've been, seem so Pierre's likely, busted been reading too many dodgy websites. Pierre's busted that one wide open. <laughs> ah, exposed. Did it. So what you're saying, <laughs> you're saying that there were actors at the Boston Marathon bombing? Yes, because there was not enough blood. I did my homework, you know, yeah. and, and I <laughs> read the conspiracy th- uh, theory websites. You looked at the pictures? <clears throat> yeah, this guy with a, the bone, like a stick, it didn't look so realistic, and the, the blood was very red. There was almost no blood, by the way. No blood, I mean, a mass bombing with all those shrapnels and all those injuries. 
almost no blood and did you, people did that didn't like terrorize they're like uh, shocked or it didn't seem did you so, measure so how realistic. much blood there was no i didn't have, have you been in a trauma surgery room well there was <clears throat> there was a, most of the most of the injuries were kind of largely superficial uh kind of flesh wounds so with those you don't get an outpouring of blood you know um usually see a lot of blood when someone's been you know filled full of holes or something like that or shot you know where uh, um but the the bombing was shrapnel wounds um sure they bleed but it was quite a small explosion uh, in a small area and um the blood thing i mean as far as i'm concerned the the pictures that i saw of that scene there was enough blood there to account for the kind of injuries that people had um the people closest to the to the bomb uh sustained the worst injuries and took the took the brunt of the blast um and essentially protected other people from from more serious injuries um the blood was there's two things about blood people are talking about the color of blood and stuff blood is bright red when it immediately comes out of you because it's oxygenated and then as it lies in the ground it becomes deoxygenated and it turns into a darker red uh, so I didn't see any evidence to think there was any problem with the color of the blood. Um, also, TV renders blood in a slightly different color. Uh, TV images or even photographs will render uh, reds in a different color than you see them with your eye. So you can't rely on that as an objective, you know, to make an objective assessment. Um, Jeff Bowman, the guy, the famous, yes. the famous guy with the leg in a wheelchair, um, why was there no blood? spurting out of his leg all over the place like there is in the movies. The femoral artery being severed. Yeah. Well, you know, there, I mean, obviously he contributed, he would have contributed some blood to, to the scene, but um, in terms of what happens when you get a, an amputation like that, um, your blood vessels kind of spasm and uh, they kind of tend to pull back into the injured part and this can slow or stop the blood bleeding quite quite quickly. Uh, constriction of blood vessels and... Uh, I mean, the point is that your body uh, is fairly well designed in that it um, it knows that if you... Uh, if it was just to, like, if you get a wound, if it was just to squirt all the blood in your body out of the wound, then you would die very quickly and it wouldn't be a very well-made machine. You wouldn't... Uh, last very long so it has various te- mechanisms to to staunch and stop blood flow including clotting etc so um i mean i've talked to uh surgeons who don't find that image surprising uh at all um and there's also there's also a theory that you know they showed uh, bowman afterwards with his you know you see that the amputation was below the knee and then ultimately he was when he came out on the hockey pit on the ice rink and stuff at the hockey match, he was above the knee amputee. But, I mean, if you look at the extent of the injuries, uh, and the official story is that it was decided <clears throat> for various medical reasons that, and for his, his interests that uh, the cut above the knee would have given him, uh, you know, that essentially the rest of his knee, the rest of his leg wasn't capable. So, I mean... <sighs> And that's just Jeff Bowman, who certain 
conspiracy theorists chose to home in on, there are about six or seven other amputees who are present. So we need to go and explain to them and their families, shh, keep quiet, remember you're only acting. At, at that point, it becomes uh, a little bit impossible to keep this as a staged event in the way in which they're talking about it. A, a public event, completely staged. Look at the Trinity uh, test during Second World War, the first atomic bomb. It involved more than 100,000 people. It was consuming 20% of the U.S. electricity consumption. It involved the creation, literal creation from ex nihilo of entire village, 120 facilities, has been hidden to the old U.S. public for 25 years. So staging a, a smaller bombing event like a Boston Marathon one with a, a few dozen actors, it's small compared to a major conspiracy that uh, history has eventually revealed. There's a difference between the two settings. One takes place in a desert under strict military control that even the president doesn't know about. The other takes place at a public venue at a very public sporting event with potentially tens of thousands of TV eyewitnesses in addition to the thousands present. You're comparing apples and oranges, I think. The whole contention is ridiculous if you just think it through, you know, that they put on these processes immediately after the bomb. I mean, obviously nobody disagrees that a bomb went off and um, it blew out windows and stuff. uh, So it was would have been quite a shocking thing, but apparently immediately afterwards, within the next 10, 30 seconds afterwards, there were teams, supposedly teams of crisis actors, crisis actor helpers, crisis actors themselves, who having sustained the force of the blast, they very quickly regained their wits, all took their positions, and the helpers came in with the prostheses and started to put them on the legs, for example, of uh, of Bowman, because that's supposedly a prosthesis, the prosthesis, the uh, the femur sticking out, and um, this was all organised. I mean, you can just think through the the, the intricacies of, of planning to do something like that, and how it's even feasible that people would be able to operate under those conditions. While there were people milling around, immediately people race organisers ran over, and they were all part of it, supposedly as well, because or maybe they did this so quickly that. They put on the processes so quickly that the race organizers didn't see uh, that this was going on. Apparently, they were throwing fake blood down. No one saw that. Everybody was involved, right? Everybody was involved in this conspiracy. And um, <clears throat> and nobody said a word. And uh, and for what point? You know, I mean, it takes such massive planning to do that compared to just put a real bomb and let real people get killed and injured. And you have the same effect. Joe, Joe has dealt with the actor's theory piece by piece thoroughly in the book. I can assure you, if it sounds like we're being just dismissive here and not even willing to listen to the evidence, we, we have. We've, we're pretty confident we've thoroughly looked at it. It is true. It's extensively, extensively uh, dealt with. Uh, so, but I have one, one point uh, was that they... Um, one theory behind the actors thing is that they they used the, the powers that be or whoever was behind this used actors because they didn't want uh, 
people to be killed. Yeah. But for, I ask the question, for what reason? And it's just their own moral... They're human. They're, they're just human, so they, they didn't want... But, but, so it's just at that personal level, but at the same time, everybody thinks that real people were killed. You know, so it's certainly not to save the population of the trauma, obviously, of, of, of realizing that a bomb was... A, a bomb went off and people were killed. Because everybody thinks... Everybody in, in, in the U.S. and around the world who watched it thinks that a bomb went off and killed real people. So it's just to save those people from the idea... I mean, what's the point? I don't, I don't really understand the point. I see what you it. mean. Why the exception yeah. in Boston? Wait, something uh, striking. Uh, go on. Uh, this began with the Sandy Hook shooting. I think this, as Joe said at the time, this shooting in particular has done a real number on people. 22 children, 5 to 6 years old, riddled with 11 to 14 bullets in the space of two and a half minutes. I think... That was so unbelievably terrifying to accept that that could have been done just just for the sake of terror. I, I think people people who are used, themselves used to actually looking the horror of reality in the face, for some reason, this actor's thing came out of that because they couldn't quite accept it. You have to escape the pain. They have to escape the pain. So they, they invented a scenario where the entire school was fake. It was never a real school. It was a purpose-built stage-managed event with cameras, lights, action, crisis actors. Why don't they show the children's dead bodies? Well, the same reason they wouldn't in any situation, because it's horrific. But that was taken as evidence that there were no actual children killed. And that was the, the heart of it. They, okay, I can't accept that they just killed 22 kids. And from there, it, it's a phenomenon that snowballed. And it's, it has snowballed retrospectively. There are now people saying that, um, what was it? Some, somebody applied the actor's theory to the JFK assassination. I can't remember what the angle was. But and to 9-11? To 9-11. Autogram. Okay. We saw it there, but too, yeah, that, that, the no planes theory. Yeah. In other words, the contemplating the thought that there were people in the plane yeah. slamming into those buildings was just a little bit too much. Um, just um, another point about the discovering this topic. I was surprised to see that almost systematically the terror event coincide with a drill operation. So is it just coincidence? How come? Um, no. This is something that's become to the fore since 9-11. It's, it's another layer of this infrastructure I was talking about. Just about everywhere, at any given time, there are drills going on in the U.S. all the time. And it's become an industry in itself mm -hmm. involving uh, EMT personnel, uh, federal agents, police, etc., and, yeah, invariably you find a drill was happening simultaneously, in some cases, at the precise locations at the time. And then they just, to quote the, the head of the, the drill operations taking place in London during their terror attacks in 2005, oh, we just thought 
Oh, real bombs went off. Exactly the right time and place. So we just switched from drill to live situation. And all the personnel they had in place then responded as it was real. Uh, in, in the case, it's a case-by-case it's a case basis. You sometimes see that there was a drill nearby. Sometimes there was something happening at the same location. Um, in the case of Sandy Hook, there were a couple of things going on nearby, one of which we speculate allowed, it, it would have been an ideal cover through which people who would otherwise have stood out like, who are you and what are you doing here? Dressed from head to toe in black and loaded with guns and ammo. Oh, oh, I was part of the drill and I heard what happened, so, you know, I came over. Oh, sure, sure, go on. You know what I mean? It, it's another layer of infrastructure that provides that. Yeah, you flood the area with people from out of town, law enforcement from out of town, uh, so that it complicates the whole scenario when certain people can get in there who wouldn't normally be there or who n- normally would stand out or would be questioned because if it's just a local situation, then immediately on the scene it's just local police. So if a stranger comes in, that would stand out. But uh, if there's something going on nearby, foreigners can come in, you know, get guys from you know somewhere else on some kind of FBI or police or SWAT training mission or something, you know. <clears throat> they hear about it on the radio and they come over. <clears throat> so... Uh, but yeah, the drill thing either is for that purpose, or it's um, in in the case of the Boston uh, Marathon bombing. It, it seems that it allowed there was a drill for a bomb going off at that site, um, a planned drill. <laughs> it's amazing coincidence, and you have mm-hmm. to be a real coincidence theorist to kind of uh, to believe this. <clears throat> but it it would allow again, certain people to be in place to be doing certain things that otherwise would look suspicious but can be passed off as part of the drill. Um, so it's a cover, essentially, for people to be there to do what they need to do or part of the actual fake terror attack, uh, along with people who don't know what's going on. Uh, and So it's a confusion. It confuses the situation and allows for the people who are really in the know to, uh, to do what they need to do while the rest are kind of confused and not sure what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's a need-to-know basis. I mean, the the drill situation in Boston is is kind of complex, but I'll try and tease out the different parts. There was a massive, and it's been an annual event in Boston, a drill organized by a company that specializes in organizing drills that was due to be, I think it was due to be held in November last year, in June, so three months after the attack in the Boston Globe, a story came out like a kind of, oh, by the way, isn't that interesting kind of story, <laughs> where the now cancelled Boston drill had as its drill scenario pretty much exactly what had happened on April 13th, 19th, three months before. The drill that was announced on the day wasn't quite a pre-planned drill. It, it kind of came up as a last-minute thing. So two hours before the actual bomb went off outside the public library in Boston, there was a tweet by the Boston Globe saying, uh, police have just announced there's going to be a controlled bomb explosion in mm-hmm. uh, one minute at 1 p.m., two hours before. It's kind of like someone was going, quick, get this out. Oh, wait, well, <laughs> you know, there was some confusion there. There was also confusion at the beginning of the race 
beginning in the sense of where the race started and at the time it started, there was a a lot of police were suddenly out in force. And judging by eyewitnesses, it didn't. They they said the police seemed like that wasn't planned. It was kind of nervous, like they had gotten a tip about something. Yeah, there were snipers on rooftops and stuff. You know. So that's not quite a drill. That's more no, like it was very overt because drills are usually done in a, in, in a way that doesn't disturb the activity, the public activity going on, uh, or at least has minimal impact. It certainly wouldn't stop the marathon or have any cause any. Uh, delay, delays or disruptions uh, but apparently this one did and um, one of the guys who was running the marathon said yeah this was when they announced it that uh, it seemed like legitimate it wasn't part of a drill these people were saying that there was something uh, some kind of an alert a real alert going on you know because they don't announce those drills to people and no. the whole point is nobody's meant to know it even in those drills even the police officers don't know they're given very basic information about what they're meant to be looking for just go out and there may be something happening. You're meant to find a suspicious device. So nobody knows. The public certainly don't know and the police have very little information as part of the drill. But this was announced at the start of the race to the public. So that's why this guy said that, yeah, that wasn't part of a drill. That was real. Um, so it seems like Neil was saying there's, uh, there's confusion going on. Um, but confusion can work to the benefit of the, of the plotters as well, you know. Um, but yeah, what it all comes down to, and, and the thing that the, that these people who organise these kind of terror attacks, these fake terror attacks, false flag attacks, um, the thing that they rely on is what we were just talking about a while ago, which is the people's credulity or their lack of willingness uh, to believe that uh, their authorities would ever do anything like that, and that gives them a lot of scope to do a lot of things and then provide... It's a mile-wide blind spot. Yeah, provide a plausible uh, bullshit explanation that people will willingly believe because the alternative, even the alternative to which evidence points, people will dismiss because of this idea of they wouldn't do that because people cannot allow themselves to think, even for a moment, that people in positions of authority are essentially conscienceless and far from having their best interests at heart are actually uh, care very little about them and would uh, you know would sacrifice them very quickly and very easily uh, if it was if it was deemed necessary to to serve their the elite interests um, and of course this brings in the topic of psychopathy and the idea of psychopaths and the idea that there are people who do not have that conscience or empathy, that natural human, uh, you know, conscience that uh, that would stop the average person from just going out and or planning to kill another person indiscriminately or kill children indiscriminately. Uh, if you have people in positions of power, in particular, who who don't have that conscience or a sense of empathy, that natural human uh, tendency or, or, or you know innate characteristic. Uh, well then, you know, you have to accept, and that's why psychopathy is so, so important. In that case, you have to accept that they would do that because that's what they do because that's who they are and they are essentially not really the human beings in that sense, if you, depending on how you define human beings, a human being. It's, uh, if you define it by a kind of a sense of community and a caring and a consideration and a protective instinct of other people and certainly a 
uh, an aversion to to killing other people just for no reason when you're not being threatened, um, then these people are not the psychopaths are not human beings, and they are essentially you know more like animals. Uh, or even worse than animals in a certain sense, mm-hmm. uh, they have a kind of destructive inclination, uh, and that they have to uh, that that manifests through them to destroy and control and to dominate others, and they have no compunction about doing it. They have no problem with doing it. They don't have those pangs of conscience. Uh, they don't feel empathy for the suffering of other people, uh, and they are the people who are in power, and they are the people who organise these kind of. Uh, uh, terror attacks that kill other people and put other people in prison, innocent people in prison for 35 years to serve their interests. And they don't care. It doesn't bother them. They sleep very well at night. Uh, so by when people project their own natures or what they perceive as a normal human nature onto people who don't have it, well then, it's a, like Neil, Neil just said, it's a massive blind spot and uh, it's, it's going to cause problems. Gonna it, cause, it is not gonna, true. It's going to get you in trouble, you know. And if on one side you have psychopathic elite that are driven by the greed and uh, lust for power are willing to kill uh, hundreds of innocents, on the other side you have a human population that is victim of uh, those manufactured terror events and that is being terrorized. But on the level of human psychology, I suppose maybe there is a normalization factor. I mean, you say mass shooting now occur twice a month in the US. So it's starting to become all news. Maybe population is starting to get used to it. So do you think, uh, how do you see the future? Do you think the psychopaths in power are, have started this never-ending race where they keep having to escalate the terror in order to maintain this uh, constant level of fear? How is it going to evolve? Worse and worse? Well, they, they have a problem. You see, terror wears off. <clears throat> As Martha Stout would put it, the paranoia switch becomes desensitized. That doesn't mean that people necessarily improve in terms of they know what's going on, I have a better idea, rather that it doesn't have enough of an effect in scaring people exactly. to do whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a, they develop a resistance to it, essentially, so you have to increase uh, the, dose. The, the dose of, of terror. Uh, but the problem with increasing the dose of terror, you, you upscale your operations and then you uh, risk, certainly increase the risk of making a mistake or, being making mistake or being, doing something so big and so outrageous that your, your usual patsy that you try to blame it on just doesn't fit anymore. You know, I mean, it doesn't even, they even experienced that with 9-11, you know, although they fought hard against it. But the idea that uh, a guy in... Uh, with uh, diabetes and kidney kidney failure uh, on a dialysis machine in in, in a cave in Afghanistan was able to carry 9-11 was rather implausible, you know, so they had to really massage the facts on that one and and get the media behind them and just catapult the propaganda, as George Bush stupidly said, um, over and over again, just repeat the message over and over again, you know. But, yeah, they have to keep up on it, you know, because it's in that trauma, trauma, period afterwards where people are kind of like in a state of shock that you that they are open to that kind of suggestion and the, the lies that came out after 9-11 immediately afterwards uh, during the, that trauma period um, were, were kind of like a mass 
a version of mass hypnosis in a, in a mild form type of thing, you know, because people were in a particular state and open, traumatized, kind of shocked kind of state. And at that point, they're very receptive to to basic facts, you know, black and white. He did it. Let's get him. Let's go. And that's why they wanted to go, go, go now. And they had a plan in advance, you know. Before people had time to kind of calm down and think about it a little bit, they were already in Afghanistan, you know. They're too late, you know. Um, maybe we, before we, we end this show, a last question. During this uh, this research and writing process that took a, a month, if not years, what was the most important and most unexpected things you discovered in this whole uh, manufactured terror topic? Um, that is even worse than I thought. <laughs> no, actually, it's um, you, you kind of get some clarity. You understand it more, you, because it's it's so it's so disgustingly inhuman. It's not anything you really will ever properly understand um, why someone would do such things deliberately. But nevertheless, you do get a better idea of what they think they're doing to people and why they do it. Um, yeah. And you actually realize they're pretty stupid. They just do it again and again and again. They think they're super intelligent because look how deceptive we are. They don't know. The people don't know because out of the goodness of their hearts, basically, they don't consider you're capable of it. But then someone really looking at it can see it and it's it's stupid as a rock. Yeah, it's... Um when you see the the effects of what they do, and uh, like O'Neill was saying about the short-sightedness of it all, and that the planet is kind of finite. There's only so many resources. There's only so much you can destroy. There's only so much you can screw up before you render the planet uh, kind of unlivable almost. You know, you can push it to that point. And you see these people just continuing on, pushing it to that point. And you can see the point coming, you know. Where, where you'll have a collapse of the, of the kind of system in, some, in, in many areas or uh, at the same time or progressively and that it, ultimately it's a, it's a dead-end game. You know, it's, go, it's going nowhere. There's no way to... I can't understand what the end result for these psychopaths in power is and I don't think they have an end result. They just live from moment to moment and do what's in them to do in a mindless kind of way. They just react to reaction machines. They're more like... They're kind of like almost like as close as you can get to a human robot, you know, that's been programmed to fulfill a function. And for me, that then yeah, posits the question of, of, you know, it may be there being some other force or power or something uh, that has some agenda. And you can be called God, but if it's God, it's a pretty evil God, you know, uh, that controls this planet and is pushing this planet in a certain direction, you know, because you have all these people on the planet who supposedly just want to live a normal, decent life. Most of them, let's, let's say, are normal people, and by and large, you know, they wouldn't end up destroying the planet, you know, they just want to live simple lives and stuff. Uh, but you see how terribly, horribly wrong it's gone, and, and how things are going in a certain direction that is certainly not good. It's over towards the edge of a cliff, you know. And so we say, yeah, okay, it's obviously people are being manipulated and we cite all the evidence and look at all the details of how people are being pushed in that direction by these psychopaths in power. But then you say, well, what are they getting out of it? They're going to push the planet over the edge of a cliff and them on it? Uh, so 
you wonder why, and you either come to the conclusion of it's all just you kind of it's kind of nihilistic in a certain way. It's you know there's no point to anything. It's just pure destruction and greed and feeding for no purpose until there's nothing left. Just for 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 greed is an end in itself. There is no consideration of of you know maintaining the you know the planet and search and, and even even from a an evil point of view, you would think that the evildoers would want to maintain the system so they continue to feed, but they're pushing the system towards complete collapse. So uh, what's the point? It's either just completely nonsensical and nihilistic or uh, or there's some other force on this planet that is you know, acting through these, these, this elite, these people in power for a, a different agenda uh, that we don't maybe fully understand. Yeah. Uh, this is why I said the victims. it's even worse than I had thought before I went down this rabbit hole because it's it's not an overarching conspiracy. It's it's a it's conspiracy as condition. It's a condition of life on this planet in the sense that you have an intraspecies predator, as Dr. Robert Hare calls them, just doing what it does. There is no purpose, as, as far as they're concerned, to why they do what they do. In that sense, it's even worse than having, at least you could mm-hmm. have an Illuminati seeking, you know, something to a new world order and it's all going to... Yes, it, there's a definitely kind of dynamic of, oh, yeah, a smaller league group or groups wanting more, wanting control. It's a dynamic rather than an actual set plan. Each step is controlled. Many, remember, many of these ter- uh, mass shootings anyway are consequences, but indirectly. They're not all planned and carried out um, by government agencies or any kind. It's like... The, the, the terror is introduced by specific actions of the elites. By reaction. But then it takes, it takes it anchors in people and they themselves carry it out. Like this whole thing about the actor theory, it's like, I can imagine some of them, some of them are deliberately spreading disinfo, but for the most part, it's not. It's just spontaneously grown. Because, and it's symptomatic, as far as I'm concerned, of this schizophrenic break from reality people are having that they, they the terror is too much for them yeah and they will they would rather create a fantasy world mm-hmm. where this was all done by hollywood and it's totally staged and that mirrors the the understood uh, reality of the psychopath and the way a psychopath sees the world that it's essentially yeah. of his own his or her own creation um that there's a, there's a good express uh there's a guy called uh Gutenberg or Gutenberg, I, I'll look up the the, the source, but um, Guns, Gunsberg, Gunsberg, who uh, cited a study done uh, with a psychopath under some kind of clinical condition to whatever he was uh, he was being interviewed, and he was asked about uh, a chair, chair, yeah, about how a chair, then how does that chair stand? It's got legs, and uh, basically the the conclusion was that if uh, if he doesn't see the chair, it doesn't exist. I mean, as in, kind of like when he turned away from the chair, it no longer existed. Yeah. So that basically what they see 
is reality. And that goes back to the quote uh, from what Seymour Hersh said, a, a U.S. Uh, a politician, a Bush government insider, apparently Carl Rove talked about them being reality creators, uh, where what they believe to be reality, they decide they're going to make it the reality and objective reality be damned, you know. Um, so it's almost like that kind of ideology, that that ideology or that view of the world of a psychopath has filtered down and has infected the minds of of some people and in other ways, the kind of way society is structured and the things that entertain people and what people believe in the mainstream media, what it promotes and what it tells people, does the same thing to every other person on the planet where it tells them lies. They believe those lies and, and that becomes their reality and it's completely divorced from objective reality, what's actually happening, you know? Um, yeah. Psychopath, obviously, from your description, won't change. So on this path of destruction, our civilization has only one choice, a choice between the manufactured reality created by psychopath or the objective reality. And the only source of hope is apparently that humanity choose, even if it's painful, to assess reality as it is. Yep. Okay, folks, I think uh, we're done for this uh, two-hour show. Thank you for sharing all your insights about these uh, fascinating topics. No problem. And uh, that reminds me, remind the listener the, the title of your book, Manufactured Terror, Busted Wide Open by Joe Quinn and no. Neil Bradley. <laughs> it definitely that's, page, the that's the title, title, of, the show. title of the show. <laughs> it's, uh, Manufactured Terror is the title of the book. Yes. Uh, but, okay, and uh, it's available in Kindle version, paper version on Amazon.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for chatting. And uh, see you next Sunday. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.